Let me introduce myself. I am David, and I have the great privilege of serving as the pastor here at Redeemer. And this is uh, the second week of a series that we're doing called Homegrown, which is all about trying to grow stronger families. And what what we're doing is we're asking some really uh, relevant questions that come up in everyday life living in a family, come up in everyday life uh, having uh, kids and, and raising kids. And, uh, and so we had asked questions and are going to ask questions like, how do I fate, uh, fight entitlement in my children? Uh, how do I um, give my kids a foundation that's going to make uh, a lasting difference in their life? And we kind of answered that one last week as we looked at the gift of unconditional love that God gives us through the story of the prodigal son. And, and that being a pattern and a model for what we give our kids to as well. Uh, and, and this week, um, what, what, what we're going to do is open up the scriptures we do with all these questions and see where God guides us and leads us and has wisdom as we try to, to, to lead our families well. But the question we're asking this week is, can I love my kids too much? Can I love my kids too much? And you probably think that you know the answer to that already. Absolutely, you can love your kids too much. That's why we talk about some kids getting spoiled, right? Uh, it's an interesting adjective to use with kids. So what are we going to talk about this whole morning? Well, I think what I realized uh, as I was working through the, the scripture passage and um, and kind of looking at this question is it's not so much a question of can I love my kids too much? It's more, it's more of a self-reflective question. It's am I loving my kids too much? Uh, wh- what I'm after here today is self-awareness. It's soul-searching. It, it, it's getting a view of what's going on in my life because we all know it can happen. And the question is, may I be doing it? Might I be doing some things that are leading to not beneficial behaviors for my kids or myself in, in my family? And, uh, and I really think this is, this is a, a scripture that's going to help with it. But I want to celebrate something first. Um, <clears throat> If you brought your Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. It's wonderful if you brought your Bible. If you did not, for the first time ever, thankfully, in the chair ahead of you, under the seat on one of the racks, uh, is a brand new Bible. We got Bibles. Yes, we're so excited about that. Been wanting these since we launched a year ago. And I would really encourage you from now on, when we are in in. Uh, when I'm preaching, that you would take uh, that Bible and you would follow along as we read the passage, but that you'd also be looking at it and studying it as I'm speaking uh, so, so that we'd get familiar with it and we'd, we'd really uh, get to cherish uh, God's word that he gives us. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 22. I'm going to read uh, one, actually long, one through 15, which is a little longer than we have on the slides. But um, before we do it, as is our pattern, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just this good gift that you give us to to come here on a Sunday and worship and 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 center our lives around you and and your love and will and desire and ways for our life. Lord, as we open up your word, I just pray that we would have ears to hear, that our hearts would be soft enough for our ears to hear, that our minds would be open to the things that, that you would have to teach us through your word, Lord. And um <clears throat> and that, that we would grow further uh, in following you and grow further in leading and, and, and building stronger families. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Okay, Genesis chapter 22, 
I'm going to read verses 1 uh, through, actually it's 14. <clears throat> Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, I will show you. So early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So there are certain Bible stories that, that really have taken on a life beyond themselves, and th this is definitely one of those stories. The testing of Abraham, this narrative of God asking Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, is one of the best-known stories in all of Scripture. It's been, uh, it's been etched in stained glass. It's been painted on thousands of murals, and for good reason. It is an absolutely incredible story for, for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it's a really important story inside of Christian faith and, and, and the narrative of the New Testament because it's a foreshadowing of the cross. We read the end. I included it to, 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 to have this place where Abraham looks up and he sees this ram caught in a thicket in this miraculous way God has provided his sacrifice. And so he doesn't have to sacrifice Isaac, but God has given a ram to die in Isaac's place. And so thousands of years before Jesus, here we have this story that is this kind of foreshadowing of what God was going to do through Jesus on the cross and dying in our place in the same way that God provided this ram to die in Isaac's place. So God provides Jesus to die in our place. And that's the gospel. And that's why this is a really central story to the Christian faith. But the, the, the second reason this story has become larger than, than just uh, inside of the Christian faith is because of really some of the ethical dilemmas that it, that, that it raises, right? There are no shortage of people who have read this story, especially outside of Christian faith, um, and, and have said, I cannot believe 
that this is part of Christian religion, that, that a good God would ask his, a father to kill his own son. And, and, and just to let you all in on some of my own personal journey of faith, it was it, when I was having a crisis of faith, when one of my own uh, friends was in a tragic accident and suffered tremendously, and I looked at this fellow who was one of the best people that I knew, and I was asking the question, how can a good God allow this to happen? It was uh, this passage in Genesis 22 that was one of the scriptures that I had to work through and understand in order to be okay with, with the Christian, Christian story. I, I spent a lot of time in, in this scripture. And um, considering that today I am a pastor and all, uh, perhaps I got some good answers. <laughs> and I did. And I promise you, one of these Sunday mornings, uh, I really am going to, we're going to open up this passage again, and we're going to look at it, and, and, and I think you're going to be able to see it in a, in a whole different light, uh, because, um, you know, at least in my own journey, I was really helped by uh, understanding um, some, eth- some, some thoughts in ethics and philosophy, particularly a book by a man named Soren Kierkegaard who, who called Fear and Trembling, which talks about God's relationship to ethics, which was very helpful for me. Uh, I don't know how many of y'all are going to read Soren Kierkegaard, but if you come that morning, uh, I, uh, I'll talk also about some of the very critical cultural context that's going on in this passage that actually illuminates it in an entirely different way, where God is actually, what he's doing is he's setting himself up in contrast to people's expectations of gods and the practices and the desires of the lesser, not real gods in that way. And so what the point of the passage is, is that the one to true God actually doesn't require the sacrifice of our children, that he really is good, that he can be trusted, and that he will, he will provide. And that is absolutely there and, and one of the major points of this passage. And we'll get there one day. But this morning, um, I want to look at it from an entirely different perspective, uh, the perspective of wanting to grow a stronger family. And this question, can I love my kids too much? And it's, it's different than I have ever studied it or thought about it before as a relationship of parent to child and the bond of love between them. And so I want to give credit where credit is due. There's a man named Timothy Keller who is a fantastic Christian thinker, and he wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods where he talks about one of the aspects of this story, one of the threads being actually idolatry and specifically the kind of idolatry that sometimes parents can develop over time in their children. Keller makes the very astute point that Isaac had become or was threatening to become in the life of his father Abraham an idol. And, and, and I'm going to explain that a little bit later, but let me, before I do that, define the terms. Because idol isn't a word that we use in everyday speech, and idol is actually a biblical concept. And it's, it's not just some old weird shiny statue thing that people used to bow down and worship. In fact, it was never that, even in Abraham's day. And, uh, and I think a very helpful and more accurate way to think about what an idol is is to define it like this. An idol is any good thing in our lives that threatens to become the ultimate thing. An idol is any good thing in our lives that threatens to become the ultimate thing. And the Bible is absolutely clear. There really should be nothing in our lives that is ultimate beyond God. And that is for a lot of really good reasons. But, but the scriptures are just as clear as they can be about this. 
the very first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not have anything that's ultimate in your life ahead of God. But the, the thing about idols, and, and I, I think is important to recognize, is it's never like you choose that something is ultimate. It's that these things slide into that place kind of subtly, kind of unknowingly, and we don't even recognize it until it's happened. And it's good things. These are things that are designed for us to enjoy, to find meaning and pleasure in, to, to, to just simply have joy with. And, and so, uh, like, things like my beloved hunting and fishing, my favorite hobby, like that's a good thing in my life. But it's a good thing that can become an ultimate, th- uh, an ultimate thing. Uh, another thing is like a career, right? This is a good thing. God designed work. It's a good thing for us to work. Uh, but careers are something that can slide into that place too. Uh, if you're a kid, particularly a male, I don't know if this will be as relevant for females, but as a little kid, something I really, really enjoyed was playing video games, right? I could play um, uh, Street Fighter for hours on end, right? <laughs> Mortal Kombat was the game, right? Uh, but, but, but what happens is that these things can s- take a place in our lives that they shouldn't, and things can get out of whack. And so what happens if a young kid gets so involved in video games, decades later, he is living in his parents' basement with a scraggly beard and has sweatpants on, and we all realize that something in this life is way, way out of whack. And it's this stark picture of what happens if something becomes an idol that should not be ultimate in our lives and has become ultimate in our lives. And where the danger in idolatry is, is, is not so much in the stark pictures, because we can all see that. It's, it's in the subtle things that are more culturally acceptable, like when I pursue my career above anything else, right? Because that's what people do. That's a good thing to do, right? So we don't see it or... Even, even more specifically, sometimes when I'm loving my kids in ways that isn't helpful for me or for them. So this is how this works in Abraham's story. And I want you to think about this for a moment. Uh, if you don't know the story of Isaac being given to his parents, that's fine. I, I just want to kind of give you the, the background here. And, and it's this, when God uh, reveals himself to Abraham, he makes this promise to Abraham. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Look up in the sky, count the stars. That's how many your descendants will be. And it's a- an incredible promise because at this point in Abraham's life, he is well beyond uh, the age in which anybody really wants to become a dad, right? He, he is old. His wife is old. The scripture says she is beyond childbearing years. And so this is not just a promise. This is like a miraculous promise that, that he can't even really even believe. His wife, Sarah, when she is told, laughs at this because she knows how ridiculous it is. And then when Isaac is born, right? He's named, he laughs. That's what Isaac means. But it's this incredible miracle baby that's been given to this this couple that has fought infertility all their life. They've wanted a child and never been able to have one. And now they're suddenly given this child who is part of God's plan and in healing the brokenness and blessing the world. And he's it for his parents. Like their whole world like now suddenly circles around this child to an incredible extent. And with that being the background of this story, uh, is it bad that they love Isaac with that extra love because of who he is and how they received him? No. 
Is it idolatry that he's the center of the world? Maybe not, not necessarily, but, but can you see how with that being the story for Abraham and Isaac, how the love that I, Abraham might have had for Isaac could have threatened to become greater than the love that Abraham had for the God who gave him Isaac. So what Keller says is that one of the reasons God gives Abraham this test is in order to allow Abraham to check and see his own heart. Because the choice shows Abraham in a stark way where his ultimate commitment is in his life. Abraham can either choose his son as the most important thing in his life and disobey God, or Abraham can choose to trust the goodness of God, the God who gave him that son, and obey. And if Isaac was the good thing that had become the ultimate thing, In Abraham's life, Abraham was not going to obey God. He wasn't going to go up that mountain trusting God would provide and sacrifice his son. But if God was the ultimate thing, still the ultimate thing, or needed to again become the ultimate thing, Abraham would would by faith struggle and choose to to make the decision to obey God. And, And what it would do is give him this very lucid look at what was happening in his own heart. Uh, this test lets Abraham see what's going on in his life. It's a warning and a way to course correct. And, and I like this passage so much on this topic of can you love your kids too much because parents, sometimes we need to just have that moment where we get a lucid look of the relationship that we have with our kids to make sure that, that it in fact is good and is healthy and it's not too much. I was studying... Um, actually idolatry a few months ago, which is kind of weird. I know that I'm probably the only one in the room that just randomly studies idolatry a few months ago, uh, but I, I had some questions that I wanted to, to, to work through with it, and so I opened up a Bible dictionary and did some research, and I ended up uh, actually finding a, a preacher who offered like a series of questions that you could ask yourself to see if something was threatening to make an idolatrous jump in your life. Like, here are a series of questions, and if you can check all these boxes, um, you'll recognize that this thing in your life is, is probably a little bit out of whack. And he wasn't talking about kids. He was just talking about anything. And so here's the questions that, that he offered. He said, if you can say of this thing, I'll spend time on it. I'll spend money on it. I talk about it all the time. I'll protect it. I'll defend it. I'll serve it. I'll worry about it. I'll make sacrifices for it. I'll build my schedule around it. He said, if you can say of this thing, all those things or most of them are are true, you may be standing on the precipice of idolatry with this thing in your life. Or, and then he had this pause and spontaneously he said it. I think it was a Freudian slip. He said, or you could just have kids. <laughs> and, 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 and in that moment, like he, he caught himself off guard. Uh, like, oh my gosh, all this is absolutely true of kids. And it was this lucid look into what had happened in his own life. And here's the thing that's so interesting about that to me is because when you look at that list, like, I'll worry about it, I'll spend time on it, I'll spend money on it, I'll build my schedule around it, I'll make sacrifices for it. Actually, when you become a parent, 
You need to do those things for your kids. Like that's part of being a good parent and caring about them as you should. But what it also tells us, and I think this is the realization that he had, is inherently in, in being a parent and loving our children the way that we do, there's also this danger. There's this slippery slope that suddenly we can, that, that can get out of whack and we can kind of lose ourselves and, and our kids can become more in our life than they, than they ought to be. And, and, and so he got that moment of clarity. Uh, and I want to offer you all some, some lucid moments as well, some questions so that you can ask yourself, not can I love my t- kids too much, but am I loving my kids too much? Here's the first one. You might be loving your kids too much if you struggle to discipline or displease your children. You might be loving your kids too much if you struggle to discipline or displease your children. You know who comes to mind here? I don't know if you've got Harry Potter fans out here. Dudley from Harry Potter. Uh, You may or may not be familiar with him, but if you're not, he is the cousin of Harry Potter, the non-magic yielding muggle cousin of Potter whose parents uh, love him so much that he can do no wrong even though he does a lot of wrong. And his parents don't like displeasing him. They never ever discipline him and he gets whatever he wants and if anything goes wrong, Potter gets blamed. And uh, this is a, a, a more extreme example, but, but it kind of paints a picture, and I think it intends to paint a picture of what happens when kids are treated like this, when they're never disciplined or we are scared to displease them, because this is what becomes of Dudley in later Harry Potter movies, right? He looks like he's going to beat you up. And his parents look like they're absolutely exasperated. What have they done, Right? and never disciplining or displeasing him. There's a biblical example of this as well that comes to mind. The book of Judges, the person of Samson. The story of Samson. Do you know that story? Do you remember it? Big muscles, don't cut my hair. Delilah cuts it. He gets chained up, and he knocks down a temple, and that's how he's depicted in this drawing when he's chained up about to knock down the temple. Part of Samson's story and his downfall is that his parents wouldn't tell him no, and they were afraid to displease him. And, uh, and obviously, this is a choice that Samson made, a bad one, but, but there's definitely this in here where his parents uh, were p- part of that story. And, uh, and we don't know all the details, but, but what, what happens is that Samson wants a wife, and he asks his parents for a particular girl. And his parents say, no, why don't you marry a nice Hebrew girl? And what does Samson do? He barks back at his parents like Dudley and says, no, Judges 14.3, get her for me, for she pleases me. Like, I want this. Give this to me. And, uh, and his parents feebly back off and get and, and allow this to happen. And, um, and it was her, this girl that he wanted, who was Delilah, who cuts his hair and puts him in prison and chains us up and leads to his death, right? And, and so it's a stark, these are stark images of what happens. But, but here is where I think the slide begins. Here's where I think is so hard about, about this thing. It's hard when our kids are mad at us. We do not like it when our family members or our kids are mad at us. I don't like it when my kids think that I'm a mean, terrible person. I don't like it when they say that to me and it ramps up as they get older. My kids are just starting it at seven to say, dad, you're mean. I don't like you. 
uh, you're, you're horrible, and, um, and I think it probably just gets harder from here, right? Uh, and, 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 and we don't like it. it. It really hurts when these kids who we've given everything we can to, invested so much in, kind of throw up their, their fist and say, Dad, Mom, I'm so upset at you right now. You're bad. I don't like you. It makes us, it, it, it makes us second guess ourselves. What it, what it does is it, it makes us wonder, am I being too hard? Should I not give a punishment here? Is there something I'm not seeing? Should I give less of a punishment? And I, I remember vividly when this happened for the first time in our house. I got three boys, and the youngest one named Johnny was one year old at this point. And my little curly-headed Johnny boy at one was probably the cutest kid that's ever existed in the history of the world. I just want to be <laughs> honest. And his brothers aren't here, so I can say that, no. And I'm not biased because I'm not his, I'm his dad, you know. But uh, he, he was so cute and so fun. And one night we were up in, um, uh, in our upstairs, and all of a sudden, like, I just kind of get a glimpse of this. But he runs over, and, you know, fun, beautiful, cute Johnny runs over and just whacks his older brother as hard as he can, so loud that I could kind of hear that hollow noise that sometimes you hear when he hits somebody in the back. He was one, right? And, uh, and for a moment, I was proud. Um, no, but I mean, for a moment, uh, I got it together and was like, wow. And then I, I walked over to him and said, Johnny, no, like, you can't hit people. We don't hit people. And then I grabbed him, and his mother was there, and we got down together, and we're like, Johnny, you, you don't hit your brothers. That's not okay. We don't do that. You're going to get a timeout. You're going to get put in your crib. And it was like slow motion from here because like he, all of a sudden his little face, you know, big eyes just looking at us, like all of a sudden his lower lip started to quiver and those big eyes got moist and he just took the deep breath and went, and turned around and ran down the hallway into the other room to get away from us like I had just killed a puppy or something. I mean, he was so upset. And, and what it made me do is like question myself like, oh my gosh, he's one. Was I too hard with him? Should I not have said that? Like, I'm a terrible parent. I've just scarred him for the rest of his life, you know? And then Shannon and I look at each other because we're thinking the same thing. And then we realize, oh my gosh, like, no. He's not the victim, he's the predator, right? <laughs> he's the one that messed up big time. And so we got him and took him to his crib. But I know that I'm not the only one that's had those moments. And, um, and, and I know that it's hard to love our children when they're displeased and upset with us. I, honestly, I know that it's hard to love anyone when they're displeased or upset. It's hard to give tough love or to give people the natural consequences of their actions, but it does not help anyone, especially our kids, when, when we skim over things that happen like that that hurt themselves or other people, if we do not deal with that, we are going to face major issues later, and things will be far off worse and far worse in the long run. And, uh, and, and so let me assure you, when you're disciplining your kids when they need to be disciplined, you're doing the right thing. It doesn't matter how upset they are at you. Hold strong, parents, because when, when they are displeased with you, sometimes it means that you're doing a good job. 
right? And you need to take confidence in that. So be, be ready for it. When you don't discipline your kids, when you back off because you're worried that they're displeased of you and you don't want them to be angry with you, you're not living, loving your kids too much. You're not loving them enough, right? And, and I just want to share one more scripture that I think is, is just really helpful in, in, in saying that this isn't just parenting advice. This is biblical advice. And it comes from Hebrews 12, 5 through 6. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline or lose heart when he rebukes you. And this is the key, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone he receives as a son. And so when we are received into God's family as his children, right, part of him loving us, part of God loving us is disciplining us. Discipline is a function of love, and, and, and it's a good thing when we follow in this pattern with our families uh, we're following in the pattern that God gives to us. And we need to remember it when we're being disciplined too. That's what that whole passage is about. It's because God loves us. Here's, here's the second thing that I want you guys to think about. You're loving your kids too much if you're losing your life in theirs. You are loving your kids too much if you're losing your life in theirs. Have you all ever been on a plane? Most of us have, I imagine. When I uh, was on planes, uh, maybe a decade ago, they would do that little, and I would listen to it, that little safety talk at the beginning, right? I don't think anybody listens to that anymore. Um, but, but they would do that safety talk, and there's one part of it that I would always remember. And it, it was when, like, so they said, in the event that, uh, that, that you're all going to die and this plane is going down and the slight chance that you're going to live, <laughs> these oxygen masks are going to drop down, Right? And you know the answer to this. Who do they tell you to put the oxygen mask on first if you're a parent? Yourself and not your kids. And I remember the first time I heard that, I was like, what? That's so counterintuitive. But the reason is, right, because if you can't breathe, if you're sitting there hyperventilating, you can't help the kids that are with you. And, and that's not a principle only for emergency moments. This is like a really critical principle in all of family life, especially as a parent. If you want to be a good parent, you cannot totally lose yourself. It isn't healthy for you to make every single sacrifice to forget what your life was like before kids. Because if you do that, you, you won't be able to give your kids what they need either. They need a healthy you, and you're not going to be healthy if you lose yourself. So what that means is we have to learn, and, and every parent learns this, that you kind of have to relearn your life once you have kids. Like, it begins with your marriage. Like, now you're no longer just husband and wife, cool and hip without any kids, right? Like, you've, you've had to become co-parents. And so, like, you have to start dating again, even when the kids are around, to make sure that this thing is strong between spouses and you can be fully present for your kids when, when you need to. You need to do it individually as well. Uh, men, you need to do the things that you enjoy. Like, you need to enjoy your hobbies again. So, 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 so I... And I told my wife Shannon this when she was here. I need to go hunting and fishing. Praise God, right? <laughs> no, uh, like I, I need to do the things that help me recharge. And, I, and not as an escape, 
um, from the responsibilities that, that are more important that I have as a family and not when in certain situations like when my wife just had a baby and I need to be pulling the weight in other ways, but I need to make sure that I'm doing the things that let me uh, be healthy that, that, so then because I need to be fully present with my family. Mamas, you're included in this too. There's a, there's a saying that comes to mind here. If mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> and it's true. So, so what's the job of the family to recognize that and to make sure mama is happy? Mama, it's okay to take time for yourself. Uh, you need to do that. And Shannon has helped me see, and we've learned over the years, you need to take intentional time for yourself where neither your husband nor your kids can find you right? Where you go away. And, and that also includes, uh, it, it cannot include like just putting your kids in front of a screen and, and, and then going through Facebook. That's not going to recharge your battery. You need to do the things that help you uh, really get better and, and have energy and get out of bed in the morning and love your family like they need to be loved. And, um, and I heard a really excellent question uh, this last week in a, in a slightly different context, but from a real smart person in a way that I'd never heard it before. And, uh, and, and it was this. I think the question we need to ask ourselves as parents is, am I me? Am I me? Am I the person that, that I need to be and supposed to be right now? And if you can't answer that question, yes, like, uh, then that's probably an indicator that, that, that there's something that needs to happen, a change that needs to be made. In fact, you may need to go talk to somebody. You can talk to me. There's some other people that we can connect you with, and that, that's really critical. But uh, you've got to be you, fully you, if you're going to be fully present for your family. And, um, and, and God can get us back on track. Like, it's not too hard on any level. Um, and it's good news that we, we get to get healthy. Okay, here's, here's the last one. Let me spin this positively. You are loving your children rightly. You are loving your kids just right when you love and follow God. You're loving your kids just right when you love and follow God. I want to point out something that you may not have seen in the scripture. When Abraham and Isaac are walking up the, up the mountain, and Isaac puts it together that... Um, that there's no animal to sacrifice, that the wood's there, that the knife's there, that they've got a torch uh, or whatever they were carrying, and there's no sacrifice. He asked his dad what I'm sure was an extremely piercing question for, for Abraham at the time. He says, he says, Daddy, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And Abraham gives this answer to Isaac that's a response of faith. He says, God will provide the lamb, my son. And he doesn't know how that's going to work out at that moment. He says, God will provide the lamb. It's a statement of faith. And what I think about then is at the end of the scene, when, when Abraham is standing next to Isaac, and Isaac has been unbound, taken off the altar, there's been this, this ram that miraculously showed up in a bush, and it's burning, and father and son are standing next to each other. And, and do you, do you want to think that, that, that Isaac remembered what his dad said about where the sacrifice was going to come from? Absolutely. He remembered it. Absolutely. He carried that with him his entire life. He saw faith in his father, and, and it helped him, I am sure, later on to trust God himself. When we do things where our kids see us having this right relationship with God as the ultimate thing in our lives, it is that much easier 
for them to have that right relationship with God themselves. It, 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 when they see us taking acts of faith, doing things that are uncomfortable for us, doing things that are different because we are putting God first in our lives, that later is going to help them put God first in their lives too. And that's going to be the best gift you could give them because it's going to be the best life that they could have. We shared an article on Facebook through the Redeemer Facebook page this last week um, where a young mother shared uh, when, when she got this right. But at the beginning, it was because she, she had one of these lucid moments where she realized her family was her idol. She was driving her kids through a neighborhood to see her grandparents, their, their grandparents, her parents, and her kids were little, like three in one, like a lot of the kids running around here, whining in the back seat, as kids do. And she noticed when she was driving uh, that there was this elderly woman like way up ahead on the street in this neighborhood and like very old, like 80, and in her arms were two grocery bags and she was really struggling to move. She was, you know, hunched over and she'd take a couple steps and then have to pause to catch her breath like she was really hurting. And so she thought, you know, I should go help this woman. I should pick her up and take her where she needs to go. She said, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and do that. And then immediately these other thoughts started going into her mind. And it was like, well, um, but I have kids and they're little. And what if she's dangerous? What if it's not really milk in her, in her bag, but a weapon? What if she's pretending to walk with a limp, but she's actually a 25-year-old man in disguise? So she said, my kid's safety always comes first. And she chose not to, to pick up this lady. And as she drove by her and caught a look, she immediately realized that none of those things could have possibly been remotely true. This was an 80-year-old woman struggling to get home. And, uh, and I'm going to read you her words from here because they, they were, they're better than mine. She says, you guys, you guys, she must be a northerner because she said, you guys, I passed an 80-year-old woman with a limp carrying two bags of groceries because of my kids. Thankfully, God grabbed me and screamed, are you serious? Turn around. She is 80 years old. Turn this car around. So ashamedly, I swung at you and invited her into the passenger seat. She was so grateful and so nice. I took her about a half mile down the road to a little shack. Couldn't have been much bigger than my living room. She gushed her thank yous and crept to the door. And that, this was the first time I realized I had loved my kids more than I should and more than I loved Jesus, more than I loved bringing his kingdom down to earth. This was the first time, but not the last, I realized my family had become my idol, right? And, and here's what I love about this story is that she realized it. She saw it, she realized it, and then she corrected. And, 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 and then this is the beautiful thing. Her kids got to be a part of this good thing that, that she did. They saw mama help out an old lady, and you better believe that, that they, they remembered it, and it affected them. They saw mama get her relationship right with God, which then helped her do the things that she needed to bring the kingdom of heaven here down to earth. And, uh, and that's what our kids need the most in us, that they see us living a life of faith in God, just like Abraham did with Isaac. So, so that they themselves, when they get older, can live a life of faith and blessedness too. And that's, that's what I pray for each one of you. I pray that we all do the soul searching that we need to, to continually to ask the questions to get this right and give our kids all, the, all, that they, all that they need to. Would you pray with me?
Lord, we thank you for this incredible story of Abraham and Isaac that stretches our sensibilities and, um, and stretches us as, as being a part of a family. But Lord, I pray would stretch us in the best ways so that we could serve you and love you and help our families grow through following you. Lord, I just pray that you, your Holy Spirit would speak to each and every one of us as we need to hear this, Lord. And I just pray, um, I pray, God, that we would um, love you fuller because of what you've taught us here this morning. Uh, we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.